We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, hello, hello. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. This week we're putting the E in STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths because we're joined by Dr. Sarah Lydon, our expert co-host on engineering topics. The show is proudly recorded in Tasmania and supported by Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. I'm your weekly host, Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we'll be talking about environmental engineering with our expert guest, Robin Bussey. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about Robin, about the topic, why you chose it, and a little bit of a whet the appetite for our listeners? So, Robin is an environmental engineer who has over 16 years experience in this area. I met Robin at a UTAS Landcare event a couple of weeks ago where students were doing a engineering challenge to design bird boxes for the masked owl. Nice, that sounds really cool. Yeah, so we thought it would be great to bring Robin along to talk a little bit about environmental engineering as it's a topic we haven't really discussed on the show before. No, we haven't. And it sounds great that you like met as part of an outreach thing because I'm sure that environmental engineering is probably a great way to get students thinking about how we use engineering and the young population seems very engaged in environmental issues. So that's awesome. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so, Robin, you have extensive experience in environmental engineering projects. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what environmental engineering involves and what attracted you to the area? Sure can. From my experience, um, environmental engineering is really broad. It covers a lot of areas. Um, you can go from environmental impact assessment, waste management, wastewater management, um, hydrology, flooding, renewable energy. It's really broad. Um, I think you study broad selection of subjects and then you can specialise or become a generalist um, throughout your career. The story of how I decided to do environmental engineering is pretty lame, actually. I was watching a TV show when I was a kid, um, and they had an environmental engineer from, I think, Brisbane City Council who had installed a wetland system to treat stormwater from a suburban area. And I saw that, and I was like, that's really cool. We've just you know solved one environmental problem and created ecological diversity improved water um, and made it sort of more aesthetically pleasing for the residents. Um, I'd like a piece of that. So I so how old would you have been? I was about 15 then. Wow, that's yeah. pretty like forward thinking. <laughs> I was not that forward thinking when I was 15. In terms of the work that you've done in environmental engineering, do you fall more into the specialist or generalist camp? I am definitely in the more generalist camp. Um, I've worked across environmental impact assessment solid waste in landfill um, and waste management work. Uh, Also dabbling in a bit of wastewater at the moment. Um, I've done a lot of work around the defence infrastructure area. I've worked on several runway projects as well. So they've been in coastal areas, so they've involved sand dredging and reclamation, flood management, um, wildlife management, threatened species, all sorts of things. I've really enjoyed that aspect of my career, actually. So does that mean that you kind of go from like an environmental impact assessment, is that like before something is done through to like, oh no, something's happened, how can we minimise the impact? 
Yeah, so through the impact assessment phase, that's normally as part of approvals, and we try to preempt the types of problems that could arise um, and develop solutions to try and make sure that they don't happen or to minimise it as much as possible. In my role now, it's more in the sort of operational phase. So if there is a problem, it's like, how do we resolve that? Or if there's an opportunity for improvement, we'll try to look at next time we upgrade this thing, how do we make it better for the environment? Awesome. That sounds like a really important area. So in just a moment, we're going to be talking more to Robin about the type of work that she does. And um, Sarah will be asking you some questions about previous projects she's worked on. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about environmental engineering. My name is Sarah Lydon. I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Robin Bussey. So, Robin, in this segment, we want to talk in a bit more detail about some interesting projects that you've worked on in this space. So, is there a particular project that you think would be really interesting for our listeners? Well, I think it was really interesting. I worked on the Sunshine Coast Airport new runway um, between about... 2012 and 2014, um, working through the sort of preliminary engineering and environmental approvals for that. It was a sort of large team um, made up of several consultants. So we had the company I was working for at the time working as the lead engineering um, firm. We had another consultant who was the sort of author of the EIS and there was a community engagement consultant, project management and the client, who of course is very important in any project. And it was a really sort of collaborative framework. So I think that really allowed us to bring the best of each organisation to the table um, and make sure that any decisions we were making on the project would flow through and not compromise any of the other aspects of delivery of the project. The Sunshine Coast Airport itself is located near Maruchidor in the floodplain of the Maruchidor River, um, potentially affected by sea level rise in the future. There's threatened species, there's a national park right next door, there's acid sulfate soils, there's compressible geotechnical conditions, um, just a whole range of interesting challenges that we had to work through on the project um, to figure out how to A, successfully build a runway and B, um, manage the environmental impacts associated with that. Could you tell us a little bit more about one of those challenge areas and the kind of process that you went through in terms of identifying it and then developing a solution? Yep, sure. So the runway itself um, was to be located in a sort of low-lying area, as I mentioned, compressible soils, um, and to provide a level sort of earthworks foundation and deal with those soils, we needed about um, 1.2 million cubic metres of fill. So how big is that sort of for our listeners? The earthworks platform is about two and a half kilometres long for the runway. Um, It's very flat because it's a runway, so you don't want a steep slope anywhere if a plane runs off the runway. So it goes for a long way. Um, It doesn't look like it's very high, but at the maximum area, it's about seven metres above the existing ground level. Uh, So the process for determining how we would do that, obviously we had to decide a fill source. So there's sort of a couple of options. Um, You get quarry material, or you can obtain dredged sand. And the project team had previously worked on the Brisbane airport, and had done a lot of work looking at dredging in Moreton Bay. So we knew that there was a very reliable sand source there, very clean, and that it could be extracted with minimal environmental impact. So the process of dredging, we had, well, we thought we would use what's called a cutter suction dredger. So it's a large ship with 
a sort of hopper sends out big hose like a meter diameter hose and it churns up the sand and sucks it up into the hopper as it goes i think the vessel that they ended up using could carry 35,000 cubic meters of sand in one trip um, but I guess when you're looking at a million cubic metres, that's still quite a lot of trips. Um, so the vessel would go down to Morton Bay, dredge up the sand, sail up the coast to Maroochydore, anchor offshore and pump that sand, um, I think it was about five kilometres, to the reclamation site itself. Um, you can't pump dry sand. The dredger is able to pump on seawater to fluidise the sand at a ratio of about one to five to pump that to site. And then when it's on site, Obviously, you need to get the water out. So we had to figure out a way to deal with about 5 million cubic metres of seawater, effectively. Conveniently for the project, the Maroochydore River is salty in that section. Um, so we were able to settle out the solids from the water and discharge it once it had been cleaned up into the river. So Robin, for someone who doesn't know anything about this, how do you know those processes aren't negatively impacting the environment, particularly if we look at the short term, but then also longer term? Uh, so in the broader team, we had expert um, modelers and ecologists. So we did a process of modelling the water quality in the receiving environment to see how it would change and that's sort of the area that would be impacted. Um, the ecologists are then able to take that information and look at you know, what lives in that part of the river now, what sort of conditions can it tolerate, and determine whether those changes will have negative impact or not. And then in terms of like long term to be taking up sand from seabed and then redistributing it onto a land model but then also changing the distribution of the water over time. Like has anybody looked at that? Do you look at that in terms of mathematical modelling or um, do people like uh, when you're starting a project model what you think is going to happen and then monitor it as it's ongoing? So it's bit of both. Um, for Morton Bay, conveniently for us, someone had done a large study looking at the hydrodynamics of the system, how sand renews within the bay, um, I guess where it's most likely to replenish, how much you could extract without sort of unduly affecting those processes. Um, so we were able to tap into that previous work. That's great. So that that's a really nice um, informed scene for you to scope your project so then when you're starting to take the sand from one place and move it to the next place and distribute it do you then also like monitor are things playing out as you expect yes we do um what kind of ways do you do that so we had a um i guess if you look at it the monitoring there's sort of monitoring what you actually do so measuring the water quality that you're discharging from site to make sure that it complies with the conditions of the approval and that it's generally consistent with what you were modelling. And then you can model ecological health. So water quality in the river, for example, um, you might also do benthic in-fauna surveys to see if that sort of microbiology of the um, sediments has changed. Also looking at um, just river riverine health. So has the vegetation changed? Has the species composition changed? That sort of thing. Oh, cool. And if, I guess unacceptable changes have been observed, then you go back to what do we need to change in the process to make sure that that doesn't get worse. Oh, that's good to know that it's like continually having a feedback loop essentially and that tweaks can be made after decisions are made about this is the best pr approach we can take. That's right. Sometimes called adaptive management, oh, okay. which can get a bit of a bad rap. Um, I think 
we have moved more to applying adaptive management in areas where we understand what the impacts are likely to be Mm -hmm. so that we can respond accordingly. Um, I know in the past it has been used where there's a lot of uncertainty in the impacts and um, that can sometimes be a bit of a challenging situation both for the regulator, person doing the action and the community more broadly, I think. So it sounds like um, there'd be quite a lot of integrity and separation involved within that. I'm a medical researcher, so I don't really like know how this applies in that setting, but I know how rigorous ethics and research integrity and stuff is in my space. So is there any degrees of separation between the people that are wanting to build the runway or whatever project it may be and the people who are doing the environmental assessments or like are they all employed by the same person? Because, yeah, for me, I'm like, oh, man, if it starts to go wrong, I don't know if I would feel pretty confident to be like, actually, I think we need to change. That's probably going to cost us like a lot of money. So how is that managed in terms of teams and things like that from a pragmatic perspective? Or is there like a framework of how this should be implemented in practice? Uh, In reality, um, the people doing the coming up with the ideas on how to prevent impacts, um, understanding what the impacts are and reporting that a role Mm. in employed by the proponent. Uh, That then goes to the regulator, which is usually a government department, um, and they will have either internal specialists or they'll engage a consultant who's a specialist to review that work um, Mm -hmm. to make sure that it stacks up. And then through the sort of compliance phase, so after you've got approval and you have to make sure that you're doing the right thing, again, those um, the people doing the studies are engaged by the proponent and those result, results get reported back to the regulator. Um, I guess in terms of whether that is the right way for it to be done, um, that's a tricky question. Um, doing environmental impact statements are very expensive, you know, millions of dollars. I think it would be unfair to burden the taxpayer with that mm. um, so that you know a, some company or whatever can make lots of money, for example. Um, so I think it does make sense that the proponent pays for that. I also think it makes sense that the proponent pays for the ongoing monitoring. Potentially in the future, there might be a decision that while the proponent pays, it's managed by a third party mm-hmm. that's more independent. Um, but it's again, interesting. that costs as well. So. And it's probably a relatively new space as well, like having it so heavily regulated and having an in- like has there been increased demand for environmental impact assessments before starting a major construction piece? Uh, it's probably been around the same for the last 20 years in terms of you know what is required. I do think environmental impact assessments are improving with time. Um, technology is certainly helping there. Um, GIS systems, even just the government databases of species records and things like that makes it a lot simpler. What is a GIS system? Geographic information system. Oh, okay. So they're more... There's a lot more data in those at the yeah. moment to make informed decisions. That's right. A lot more spatial information. So in your experience of the different projects that you've worked on, have there been any cases where there were conflicting goals in terms of achieving environmental and sustainable development kind of aims compared to maybe economic or other social factors? Yes. I think every project does have that balance of what you're trying to achieve for the environment and what the sort of project outcome is. Um, Every project that we work on has an environmental impact. Um, The Sunshine Coast Airport, for example, you know, we did have to clear some amount of native vegetation. You know, it was offset and so on and so forth. 
there was fill in a floodplain that often has an impact means that you have to um, spend more money to do extra drainage works to make sure that you're not affecting people's houses because that's very important, as we know. Yeah, like, you know, there was definitely an impact associated with that project and then you weighed that up with, is the benefit worth it? And I guess you can either do that, you know, it happens on many levels. You assess that personally. Am I comfortable working on this project? Does it stack up? Or then the regulator also makes that decision of, is this impact acceptable with this level of um, benefit from the project? So you mentioned there that, um, you know, people's homes might be impacted. Is there a difference in the way impact to people and their houses is treated as part of the environment or impact to things that are maybe less able to advocate for themselves, such as animals or plants? Uh, yes, is the short answer. Impacts on you know human dwellings um, are certainly, I wouldn't say given higher priority overall necessarily, um, but it's treated with more sensitivity. So hypothetically, if you have... Um, a one in 20 year rainfall event or flood event and property X is affected by 1.5 metres and you increase that to 1.55 metres, um, that's sort of like, we don't want that. You know, go put in more drainage or whatever to make sure that that doesn't happen. Whereas often with a more sort of environmental receptor, that sort of impact isn't really considered um, important, I suppose. Um Having said that, you know, there are impacts on human populations that we do accept. Um, so with the Sunshine Coast Airport, you know, there was a new area being affected by overflight noise. There was also areas that were no longer going to be affected and overall I think it was going to be fewer people affected by noise. But, you know, it was a consequence of going forward with that runway is that new people would be affected by noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds like a really complex space to weigh up all these competing factors. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us and we'll be talking in more detail about environmental engineering to finish off the show. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about environmental engineering. My name is Sarah Lydon. I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Robin Bussey. So, Robin, in this next segment, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the future and how you see um, environmental engineering's place in future engineering projects and any future directions you might notice about the industry. Um, so just to kind of start, in the time that you've been working in the field of environmental engineering, have you noticed any change in terms of how considerations of um, the environment might have been integrated into broader engineering projects? Yep. Uh, certainly. Um, I was reflecting on this earlier. And I think engineering is really a reflection of society's values. So the more that society is valuing the environment, the more that engineering is driven to take it into consideration um, I guess in the 16 years, you know, society's attitudes have changed. You know, you have a financial crisis and focus on the environment might wane while we're sort of trying to um, resolve economic issues. Um, I guess as society 
changes, you know, regulation changes, which is a strong driver of what um, corporations have to do. I guess also more broadly, um, you know, we talk about corporate social responsibility, um, social licence. I think that's also driving behaviours in um, corporate and government world, um, which drives the type of engineering that we do. So I really think that society is sort of a key driver to how engineering responds. I think that's really interesting, Robin, about how uh, people can drive change. And I think we could see that in almost anything. Again, I'm a medical researcher. If people were really um, up in arms about, for example, how long the ambulances are banked at the Royal, uh, then it would probably create some urgency around resolving that problem, which is similar here. But how does that interplay between people who are quite removed from large projects where there would be something that's going to cost a lot of money to do an environmental impact assessment um, compared to, you know, an individual dwelling. Like, how does that interplay actually happen? Because essentially with the hospital, for example, that's very in your face. People can um, see that or maybe their loved ones are impacted by that very direct, whereas this is probably a longer scale thing. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is maybe the cable car and people being really engaged in like, well, what is this going to do? But again, are they really engaged in the environmental impacts? Are they engaged in the visual aspects, which is part of our environment too? So how does that interplay between the being quite far removed from something as a whole society changed to maybe those that live directly in that environment influenced the way the the way that uh, companies would prioritise how much they're going to invest in environmental impact assessment. Yep. So I think from sort of the, the well removed, that's driven by things like government regulation. So you know, twenty odd years ago or whatever, when Australia decided we need to start assessing impacts. You know, that was the catalyst for companies to go out and assess the impacts of what they're proposing. Um, now, through the impact assessment process, you do have to go out to public consultation, which is, you know, that people, you know, can be a bit cynical about it, that it's just providing an opportunity for people to say what they want to say, but there's never any response. But I think, in when it's done well and at the right time, there are opportunities to change the proposal to respond to those comments. Uh, one example from my early days of engineering was the Southern Freight Rail Corridor up in Queensland. Uh, the alignment was sort of proposed to go through an area of koala habitat, which it turned out was quite close to a koala hospital. And understandably, the community was quite annoyed at that. Um, so the proponent was able to sort of reconsider that proposal, change the alignment a bit. I think it might have cost a little bit more, but probably not much, um, and avoid that habitat. So there are, I think, good examples of where that feedback can be incorporated into a particular project. Um, but as I said, that sort of overall society looking out for the environment, a lot of often it comes back to the regulation through government. Yeah, that makes sense. Generally, that's kind of like what forces us to do and engage with that. I mean, instantly what what comes to mind for me is um, 
is there like how do people actually feel about that you know you I think we often see a big media story about an environmental impact of a building project and that's obviously hundreds of thousands of building projects happening around the country every year um but yeah I often wonder like well how do people think about that on a daily basis and I'm sure there's many things that happen and that people are really unaware of and maybe the consultation process could be improved but I think we've come a long way in a short amount of time my dad's a structural engineer so um yeah I've definitely heard about this over time but what would you say listeners could take away from this episode when thinking about how people who want to build go about environmental assessment I think um, often the environmental aspects of a project can improve the outcome beyond the environment so minimizing resource consumption for example minimizing energy consumption often well maybe not often sometimes you know a bit of extra money up front in your capital costs can reduce your ongoing operational costs um, and usually the ratio of capex to opex is like 20% to 80%. So you know bringing that sort of whole life cycle um, approach can really help uncover some of those opportunities for improving the environment at the same time as saving money down the track. Um, I think also and I think it's becoming more evident generally, is that social licence for companies to operate and expand. And that will become increasingly important, I think. Um, so we should always keep our eye on Great. Thanks so much, Robin. I think it's been a really interesting episode and I hope our um, listeners enjoyed it. And, you know, I think I would probably say, you know, keep an eye out for what's being developed in your local area and do actually engage with the public consultation process because if you don't use it, then you can't moan about it, in my words, in my opinion. So uh, thanks for listening. As always, we love bringing you science-related content. If you enjoyed the show, uh, you can find all of our other episodes on thatsciencetaz.org or get in touch with us on social media via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Until next time, I'd like to just thank you and goodbye from me, Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Sarah Lydon, and our expert guest, uh, Robin Bussey. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.